Hi folks, welcome to another episode of the Modern House podcast. My name's Matt Gibbard and I'm co-founder of the Modern House. Before I introduce today's guest, just a quick reminder about my new book, which is called A Modern Way to Live. It's basically a download of all of the things I've learned about the home, uh, from the place I grew up in to the hundreds of flats, townhouses and country piles I've been lucky enough to be invited into over the past 20 years or so. Firstly, as a writer at The World of Interiors, and then through my work with The Modern House. I've been fascinated to learn that all of these very diverse living spaces share the same set of design principles, and the purpose of the book is to show what these are and how you might implement some of them in your own home. Um, It's a really nice format. Uh, The size is a happy compromise between a novel and a coffee table book, so there's a huge amount of info in there, 70,000 words or so of writing, as well as lots of beautiful photographs to help bring the story to life. Um, I've just finished recording the audiobook version and it took two solid days to read it out with lots of cough sweets along the way. Uh, So I'm hoping that there will be something for everyone in there. If that sounds like your kind of thing, you should be able to find a copy in your local independent bookshop uh, or in bigger places like Waterstones or, of course, online, including on the Modern House website. Right, on to today's podcast guest. I'm really pleased to welcome the very lovely Reggie Yates. Reggie first appeared on TV as a child, firstly in the show Desmond's and then in the brilliant Grange Hill, which was certainly a mainstay of my own childhood. Um, Since then, he's been a presenter on Top of the Pops, a DJ on Radio 1 and a documentary maker covering everything from the race riots in America to knife crime in South Africa. He's just finished work on directing his first feature film, which is called Pirates. Reggie is someone we've worked with a lot at The Modern House, and he has a real passion for design and architecture, which I'm looking forward to exploring with him today. Happy listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Reggie. Hello. So, Reggie, I think the first thing to ask you is um, people obviously will know you from TV and radio stuff, but you and I met many years ago because we were selling your house in Camden. Um, yeah. And we've since sold another place for you as well, actually, in southwest London, haven't we? So what's your sort of take on design? What is design an important part of your life, do you think? Yeah, um, it always has been, weirdly. I, without breaking up the tiny violin, grew up on a council estate in North London and, you know, didn't really have much. But because I was in a borough like Islington, as I'm sure you know, it's that weird mix of million pound houses and council estates. So whenever I'd go to play at my friends' homes, I'd be surrounded by design. I'd be in these gorgeous, renovated Victorian or Georgian houses, as there are a lot of in Barnsbury and Islington. And then I'd go back to my council flat and sort of rearrange my room and try and make it look interesting or try and make it look pretty. So I was always sort of um, trying to redesign something that I couldn't redesign from a young age. And um, I would draw the things that I desired, you know, so I would draw the home that I would once live in, that I would like to think that I'd live in. I'd draw the, the sneakers I couldn't afford. And I've always sort of designed my life as it were and it started out with me designing the homes that I wish I could have lived in versus the homes that I was actually existing in at the time. 
That's fascinating. So have you managed to fulfill that vision, do you think? Yeah, um, well, I'm going to close this door because somebody is fulfilling theirs across the street. <laughs> a builder fulfilling their vision. So I'm just going to close this door so I don't have to listen to that actualizing. Okay, where was I? Yeah, I think I have. I'm talking to you from my kitchen in southeast London. And this is a house that I've had for a few years now. And we've done everything to it, you know, much like the house in Camden, sort of King's Cross that you sold for me we basically built a new house inside of an old house, you know, we sort of took an industrial ice cream scoop and <laughs> took out all the floors and all the walls and started again. And that's been the case here. And, you know, this has gone from a lovely house that, you know, housed the family with a lot of kids to something that makes sense for my lifestyle. And um, design is the reason that, that we've got there. What is your lifestyle like then? Do you live on your own or...? Yeah, I'm in a house that's way bigger than I need, but um, I'm a very social person and I have a big family. So I'm one of seven kids. So my okay. siblings have a lot of children and I'm the guy that always throws the dinner parties. And um, I'm also the guy that as of last Christmas, I host Christmas. So it's great because when I want it to be silent, when I want it to be just me, it's just me. But I have the room and the space to have people come around and work out and, you know, hang out and watch a movie and do all the things that I've always wanted to do with friends and family I can do in my home now you know are you a cook then as well I'm all right I'm not brilliant (laughs) (laughs) Um, but thankfully I know people that are um like one of my good good friends and it's weird like I call him my little brother he's actually a chef and funny enough he cooked for me and eight friends the other night I hosted like a dinner party and he came around and did the food and he's just such a talented guy and now he's like a a tv chef and he's super young he's only 23 years old but he's really really talented that's cool can you come and do Christmas dinner then (laughs) (laughs) funny enough I met his mum when he was just born so I met his mum at the BBC who I call my tv mum the amazing Juliet Dennison she's a tv producer and he was one. So she's my mate. And now her son's my mate as well. Um, yeah. And I don't think she'd let that happen because he's cooking for her at Christmas. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got a very fantastic looking wall behind you, which is sort of, you know, kind of narrow timber <laughs> panelling. Yeah. And it sounds like you're in quite a big space because of the kind of resonance of the sound. So I was thinking as you were talking, you know, we sold a couple of places for you. You obviously enjoy that process of renovating or refurbishing something what is it about that that attracts you well I mean when you say enjoyment <laughs> it's, uh, it's yeah. a lowercase e let's say yeah, it's, right. it's enjoyment without the capital I mean uh, the process is incredible but as we all know there's always bumps and there's always things that make it complicated but without wanting to offend any of your female listeners uh, I liken it to having a kid you know the childbirth is incredibly difficult and painful. Yeah. The, the baby arrives, you forget all the pain that you went through. And, exactly. and it's not that dissimilar to what I do now, you know. Um, for years, I've had so many different jobs and now I write and direct. And when you have a kernel of an idea and then, you know, you commit it to a sentence and it becomes a paragraph and it becomes a page. And then a year later, you've got a screenplay. And then eventually you go to a screening with strangers and they watch this thing that was once a kernel of an idea. That process is incredibly fulfilling as a writer and director. And I I think houses are not that dissimilar, you know. I'm in the process now of doing the sound mix, if you will, you know, by putting furniture in, I'm putting the finishing touches to the movie that I live in. And so, you know, that is uh, really nice bits of furniture and 
really nice decoration and changing a paint color or adding a bit of stone or marble somewhere, you know? So I just love the process of, of creation and evolution and, and there's nothing better than doing that and being able to live in it, you know? Once you've, you know, fulfilled that vision, what does that do for your life? How does it feel to be in there? Amazing. Uh, it's incredible. Um, I'm one of the people that was sort of raised with the perspective that every day is best. You know, like I, I try not to save my nice shoes for Sunday. Um, so <laughs> I'll, rather, I'll rather save up and get a really nice Tom Dixon dining table than buy the cheap Ikea piece and let it break on me and then get another one to replace it in six weeks. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with Ikea. Ikea looked after me and I'm sure a lot of people for years and years and for so many different properties, they kept me designed to a certain point, but now I'm buying things for life. And um, yeah. I love being able to buy something that is really gorgeous to look at, but it's also functional. And for me, yeah. that's kind of design. Exactly. Do you buy old stuff as well or is it, is it strictly contemporary? No, I buy old stuff. I've got some lovely Bellini couches in the lounge. And um, yeah, I've always bought everything from Eames to whatever, you know, and I, I've tend to not gone for the, you know, Vitra remake stuff. I've always tried to find the originals. So like I've got, I think in the house that you guys sold for me in, uh, in Clapham, I had some Togo sofas and I've still got those. And, you know, they're like a gorgeous grey suede, but it's an original sofa from the 70s. And it's just lovely to feel that history of design in something that you live with, you know? Exactly. I always say that to people. I, I think it's kind of the worst thing that you can do is buy a knockoff of something that's good design. I think either you buy something that's original and cheap and it's kind of functional and, and it has a sort of basic beauty to it mm. or buy the real thing that's original. But I think that halfway house is sort of the worst of all worlds, don't you reckon? Bad idea, yeah. Like, um, good design lasts a lifetime. And there are so many modern brands that are doing interesting stuff, like what Menu are doing and what Firm are doing. It's really interesting and it's affordable. And to be able to buy one of their pieces, knowing that in 20 years time, it might be incredibly coveted is quite cool. Like I just, um, this weekend picked up five, Martino Gamper, you know, the plastic stools? Oh yeah. Five of those in different colors. And they're like, they're plastic and they're 60, 70 quid. They're not expensive, but yeah. I think they're a modern classic. I think people will be coveting those in 10, 20 years time. And they're all over the house. And yeah, it's not just about buying expensive things. It's about buying things that you love that are timeless for me. That's the way it's always been. Well said. Let's just talk about your work for a sec. Yeah. It feels like you've been around on radio and TVs sort of for many, many years, which you have, and what, <laughs> in a good way. Yeah. What was kind of like your big break moment for you? Well, I won't take the knock of you basically calling me an old cop. <laughs> So, I'm older than you. <laughs> so thanks for that. Granddad uh, over here sipping on his tea. Um, I've been in telly for 30 years now, which is mental. And it's wow. just weird to say out loud. Because I mean, I did start as a kid. So yeah, I, I started working from a very young age. And I don't know, I don't think that there was a turning point. I think it's been a really nice gradual thing. I'm not some reality TV winner who overnight suddenly had the public's attention. I've done little things that have grown in scale over the years and I've pivoted as well. You know, I've gone from being a jobbing actor, working on comedy and drama to presenting kids TV, to then presenting primetime and then hosting radio and then making documentaries for about a decade. And now it's film and drama, you know, and it's, um, I just feel very lucky that I've been able to experiment and find myself with an audience and there, there are positives and negatives of that. The positives are that you grow with your audience and, you know, I get somebody in there, 
like mid 20s stopping me on the street going I grew up with you I used to sit and watch you while eating cereal in my pajamas and now I watch your documentaries on Netflix and I love it and it's great and me and my partner and our kid we sit and watch your stuff together and it's like holy crap that's your entire life that's awesome and then on the flip side there is footage that exists of me in my awkward teens with a terrible haircut and a crap moustache that I fashioned with a Gillette razor blade and you know I'm hosting Top of the Pops with terrible outfits on because I was 19 and I didn't know any better you know and that is forever set in stone that will forever be there so your awkward teens are hidden and at worst there's a couple of Polaroids for me there's actual footage in archive of my awkward teens and 20s so there's positive and negatives to it yeah I mean it's, it's an amazing body of work isn't it what's the chip in you that sort of drives you on to do all of that do you reckon I want to move on when I stop learning and that's not me trying to sound virtuous in any way I just genuinely lose interest if I'm not learning while I'm at work you know I was one of those kids that would finish his work as quickly as possible and it would be a level work in, in class at school and then I would just disrupt for the rest of the lesson because it was boring to me you know I was always yeah. sort of an, an A student an A star student but I was also always in trouble because I would want to just chat and mess around because if it's boring I don't want to do it so I like to be challenged and you know the, the, the last challenge that I feel that I learned as much as I could from was documentary and it was just incredible to go around the world and meet really interesting people and go through challenging situations and be able to share that with the world and now I'm able to create stories based on some of those experiences and it's it's awesome. I really enjoyed your extreme South Africa series that you did that must have been quite sobering because I mean you know, there's there's some, there's a lot of pretty awful living conditions over there but we're talking obviously about the home on this podcast what did you take from that experience? Well, uh, you know, to, to bring it back to while we're actually talking, you know, there was an episode that I did called The White Slums where I uh, was in Pretoria, I think it was. And I spent time in this uh, trailer park that was whites only. And it's crazy, you know, even saying that out loud, but, you know, even in poverty, there's segregation in parts of South Africa. And um, the living conditions there were just unreal. You know, the way that people were unfortunately they were made to live you know it wasn't a choice they were made to live that way because of the opportunities because of where they were financially it just you know it's always made me I've always been very cognizant of how lucky I am in terms of the way I live because of how I grew up but it's moments like that that really remind you of how lucky you are in your present you know yeah exactly and so your latest bit of work is a film that you've created and directed what's that been like tell us about it well, it's the best experience I've ever had creatively. And I can't stop smiling whenever I talk about it. I look like a, an idiot. I look like an absolute gormless fool whenever I talk about <laughs> the film um, because it just makes me so happy. The film is called Pirates and it's the world's shortest road movie. That's what we've been calling it. It's about three kids driving from North London to South London on New Year's Eve 1999 in a yellow Peugeot 205. <laughs> that kid's trying to get into twice as nice the UK garage club night. It's about friendship, it's a coming of age movie and it's a comedy and it's just really fun. And there's so much of me and the world that I grew up in, in there. And I'm just really proud of it because the young men that front the movie are in their early twenties, they're playing 18 year olds. And one of the most lovely things that has come from it is, you know, people that watch it talk about this feeling of joy that they get. And for me, from a massively selfish perspective, you know, I, 
I'm a huge UK garage fan and that's a huge moment in my formative years. And there's not been any movies or TV that has really reflected or highlighted that moment. You know, we've got countless exhibitions, movies, documentaries, photography and art about Scar and punk, but there's nothing about UK Garage. And for people of my generation that grew up around that music, this is the first thing. So it's just really, really special for me in a lot of ways that we were able to recreate London in 1999 with next to no budget, <laughs> you know? So we, yeah. we leaned heavily on the landmarks and the things that made it special, like Uptown Records in Soho and Club Coliseum in Vauxhall and, you know, all of those things. We brought Probito in Soho, the designer, Italian designer clothes shop. Like we brought all of those things back and yeah, it's just really special. That sounds really, really fun. Mm. What, 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 when's it out and where can we see it? It's in cinemas from November 26th. So, uh, yeah, you'll be able to see it on the big screen, which is really exciting. And again, I've got that stupid smile on my face because <laughs> I'm saying this to you and I'm just thinking about a conversation I had on Friday about the trailer, which we've just finished. And, you know, the trailer is going on the front of June. It's going on the front of Ghostbusters and Venom and all of these movies that the movie fan in me is like, I can't wait to see it. And I'm going to go to cinema and pay my money to see those movies, but my trailer is going to be in front of it. And it's just, I, I don't know, I just feel very lucky and very fortunate that not only have I had a career that's been three decades, but, you know, as a grown-up now, apparently, um, I am starting a whole new career. And um, as I said, we're in the process of, you know, finalising what we're going to do with my second movie that I'll be shooting next year. And... I'd like this to be the rest of my life and it feels like it may just be. So it's a really awesome time. Uh, good for you. That sounds excellent. Very good. Um, let's move on to your three choices, Reggie. Mm. So your first choice is the new design district at Greenwich Peninsula. I had a look around the other day, actually. I was very lucky to be invited to have a, a sniff around it and it is really brilliant, I have to say. Yeah. For people that haven't been there, how do you explain it? What is it? I could be wrong on the numbers here, but um, from what I can remember, and this is part of the reason I got really excited about it when I heard about it at the planning stages, is that in and around the O2, which used to be the Millennium Dome, as we refer to it in the movie. <laughs> yeah, do, yeah. Um, yeah, in and around the, uh, the O2, there was a crazy amount of wasteland. And you've now got what they're calling the design district, which I believe eight architects, different London firms, have all designed two buildings each. And this area, for anybody that's interested in design, is awesome because no two buildings look the same and they're all sort of bunched together. And you've got this really interesting uh, cluster of buildings that are being filled with young designers and artists and musicians. And uh, what was once Wasteland is now this incredible hub of creativity. And my pal, Daniel Bailey, who's a footwear designer, has one of the studios in there as well. And the reason he picked it was because his building has a basketball court on the roof and he's like a huge basketball fan. And for anybody that is interested in design, there's something really special about being able to exist within it and to walk between these buildings that are all really beautiful. And, you know, you're one step ahead of me, Matt, where you've been inside. I was just peering in windows and looking at like these really gorgeous, bright tangerine spaces in one of the buildings and like just, just in awe of, what will be the norm for, you know, 15-year-old me by that per by the time that person's in their mid to late 20s, they're just going to be, oh, yeah, this is a really cool thing that exists south of the river. And as somebody who moved to southeast London at 14 years old, I hated leaving North London because it didn't feel like South London was anywhere near close in terms of its development. Whereas now, I mean, you just have to look at what's going on in Peckham and with this design district, there's so much to be proud of south of the river. So it's a, an amazing 
thing that now exists a short walk from where I live and I love it. Yeah, just to sort of name drop some of the architects that have been involved. So 6A architects, who I think are just fantastic. The brilliant mole architects, David Cohn. Did some really, really good, you know, proper proper designers been invited. And I think that they were given exactly the same size plot and a blank sheet of paper. And they weren't shown what the others were designing. So there was no context whatsoever. So they really genuinely did design from the ground up. Um, so it feels sort of like an expo site, doesn't it? It feels very experimental where you've just got these kind of slightly otherworldly structures all just thrown together. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. I think if you are affected by what you're around, it's an amazing space to be in because it genuinely made me happy. It like it filled me with joy. And that sounds pathetic, but you know, um, I'm a kid. I'm a kid. As a kid, I really, <laughs> I am a kid actually. <laughs> <laughs> but as a kid, I was definitely very affected by the spaces that I lived in. And right. the minute, yeah, the minute I was able to move out and buy my first property, which I did at 18 years old, and I've been buying and selling since, and, you know, some of those houses I've sold with you guys, how that place has been designed has always affected my mood. It's always affected how creative I felt. It's always affected how happy I've been. And to be in a space that is public, that just makes you feel happy is, is really special. And that place does it for me. I love that. Yeah. Why can't it be joyful? I completely agree with you. Why can't we build things that are joyful? Yeah. Um, do you have a favourite building out of all the ones you saw? No, because um, I was definitely trespassing. <laughs> <laughs> there was one point where I moved a fence and walked into it with my pal Kevin. So we went to go and see the new Marvel movie at the O2. And I was like, should we just walk back to mine? And was like, yeah. And I was like, let's go through here. <laughs> definitely trespassed and went where we weren't supposed to. And I haven't been to my mate's studio yet. So I've only seen pictures that he sent me. So, I, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you my favourite, but what I did oh, before through peering through windows, that space with the tangerine lobby, that yeah. was gorgeous. That was <laughs> <laughs> Is it, I, I gather that they're, they're, they're heavily subsidising people that move in there, creators that move in and take space there, because it's, um, it's all commercial space for creatives. So I think it's only £5 a square foot for the first year, which is pretty amazing. So it's a good opportunity for some people to to get some really great space and some beautiful buildings. It's all gone now though, right? Because if it isn't, I'm making that phone call today. <laughs> <laughs> I would. <laughs> Check it out. Uh, but what do you think about this idea of like creating a community from scratch? Because that's essentially what they're having to do there. It's, it's, it's kind of wasteland, isn't it? Yeah. What, 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 I mean, that's, that's not an easy thing to do. No, it's not. But I'm the product of a really healthy and beautiful community, I think. And um uh, a building means nothing without people in it, you know? And I think by fostering the right kind of environment, it can only be its best self with the right kind of people there. And I think the minute that you get the right level of creative in those spaces, they'll want to share it. And as I've said, you know, the one person that I know that has a studio there has constantly hit me with images and we've been talking loads about it and I'm excited to go and visit his office. Like, who says that? You know, <laughs> so I think that, the people that get in will be excited about the buildings and will also bring people to the space. And because of that, a community will form. So I have hopes for it, high hopes of that. So you, you, you've talked already quite a lot about community. That's obviously quite important to you. I, I really liked, um, I must confess to following you on Instagram. And you did this, this great post recently, which really resonated with me because you said, 
you've started to just randomly look people in the eye and say hello to them on the street. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just, no one does that in London. How's that going for you? Uh, Well, I've not been knifed yet, so it's working out. Um, No, I I love it because, as I say, I moved to South East London when I was 14 and I've moved around a lot since I've come back to the area that I moved to as a teenager and I'm seeing it with with different eyes. And uh, one of the really lovely things about it is that for whatever reason, loads of my pals who just happen to be creative, be they musicians or writers or directors or actors, a lot of people have moved in to this area as well. And I've got this really lovely pack of people that I bump into down the cost cutter or at the farmer's market or, you know, going for a run or whatever at the park or, you know, at the coffee shop. And because of that, it feels like there are lots more people like my little pack of friends that I haven't met yet. And through just randomly saying hello to people on my morning walks, those hellos have become, how are you? Or how are the kids? And it just feels nice to be a part of something. You know, I grew up on a council block where you knew everyone on your floor. And when I first moved out of my parents' house, I moved to Cannon Town. And at that time, it was loads of people that still had their two up, two downs from the wall. And I remember this lovely old lady knocking on my door and sort of saying to me, if you need anything, love, just give me a shout. And it was just like, oh my God, I'm part of something. This is really cool. And I'd like to feel that with my street and I'd like to feel that with my area as well. Yeah, definitely. I grew up in London as well, in Islington as well, like you, for the first 40 years of my life. And now I'm in a national park in Hampshire. And it's, it's sort of the diametric opposite. But it's interesting because when you come back into London to work, I do feel a bit like Crocodile Dundee or something. You know, I, I, do, I, I, I instinctively try to say hello to people. And clearly you can't because you pass many thousands every day. But I salute you for giving it a go because I, I, I like that. <laughs> I think the happy middle ground that's a lot less awkward is just trying to engage in conversation in places like shops, you know. You're waiting behind someone in the queue, just a little comment sometimes goes a long way and talking to family and their kids, it's just just really nice and you see people relax when it happens, you know. Exactly. Do you miss it? Do you miss it, Lytton? I miss it a huge amount, actually. I think, you know, like you in a way, you, you, you kind of never, you can never deny where you come from, can you? And I'm a very big Arsenal fan and I go back to the Emirates quite a lot and I I know I still have lots of friends there so I feel I still feel connected to it but actually what I found is when you have a family and you hit your 40s I just really craved that connection with nature a bit more mm. that was what did it for me yeah yeah definitely. you know and then our, our eldest daughter had sort of you know some kind of breathing issues I think related partly to the fact that we lived on quite a busy road and and you know that also contributed to this idea that we just wanted to get a bit more fresh air <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah and I, I love Islington which which brings us actually onto your your second choice which is in the city of London so it's the Barbican estate mm. um, designed of course by Chamberlain Powell and Bond so why have you chosen this is it because it's a place that you used to go to as a kid or yeah uh Barbican's special to me because I went to Central Foundation Boys School which is uh, a really random building just behind Old Street Roundabout and um, I say random because, you know, it's essentially the city now in uh, London, Silicon Valley, as they say. Um, and there's loads of crazy skyscrapers around this old, beautiful building that was my school. And it was always really weird going for lunch and just being surrounded by suits and city boys. And you're there in your school uniform with your mates and JD sports bags, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> arguing about the football. Um, but the Barbican was a walking distance, you know, you sort of 
trip down, go past Windsor Square, down Moorgate, and then suddenly you're there. And the Barbican always felt like this really weird oasis in the middle of all of these crazy skyscrapers. And yeah, don't get me wrong, it's this massive brutalist structure, but I loved it because you had those beautiful ponds and you had that beautiful outdoor space, which was open to everyone. And then you'd wander inside and there'd be exhibitions on and it was carpeted and it was warm and it was concrete. And there were all of these really gorgeous uplights against these concrete walls that made me see concrete in a different way. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you from my kitchen and it's a polished concrete floor. And I think the Barbican has a huge part as to why I've always wanted to have concrete in my home because it is a soft material if it's treated in the right way. And I felt that even as a schoolboy walking around the Barbican, you know? Did you? That's, that's really good to hear. Cause it, it's quite, it's particularly sort of harsh at the Barbican cause it's, it's bush hammered concrete. So it's very textured, isn't it? It's really quite mm. un- uncompromising. I like but, that. See, I like, yeah. I like that texture and I've always loved texture. I've loved things that have a feeling to them as well as emoting something just off how you look at them, you know? And exactly. I felt myself touching the walls there as a kid and, I don't know why I didn't get thrown out because there's this little black dude in a school uniform running his fingers up and down the walls getting some sort of sensory <laughs> kick. <laughs> but he loved it. And it was just um, it was just really inspiring to me in a lot of ways. And yeah, now I, I have my own little bit of concrete at home. Yeah, I mean, concrete is a very versatile thing, actually, isn't it? Because, I mean, people think of it as very hard, but there's a huge amount of patina in it and texture in it and and visually you get so much variation i bet you've got lots of cracks and scuffs and you know right in your floor they always crack don't they yeah they do and i love it and you know we we continue the concrete floor out into the garden and it's nice because you know that's weathering quite nicely and it's just lovely just seeing it like today it's been quite a, a rainy morning in london and you know it's suddenly become this gorgeous mirror that is reflecting all of the green in my garden and it's just really nice that it's constantly changing I love it so what was the area around the Barbican and Old Street like when you were growing up weirdly it felt the same and it looked the same obviously the the, the skyline has changed massively but whenever I go there now I still feel that same thing and that is that you know the Barbican is this antithesis to what it is surrounded by you know you've got industry and commerce and suits and people that are quite treating the the area in a transactional way you know they're there from nine to five and they get out whereas you've got people that are like me as a kid going there for a purpose I was going to the area to learn to get an education and I'd take the long way home and take a detour and go into this space and just get a kick out of this design that that made me feel something and you know appreciating the detail of it has really affected my appreciation for detail now yeah every single corner of this home is something that has passed my desk so to speak you know I've had a say on everything from the hinges to the door handles because I care about detail and um I think that that building has a huge part of that that outlook for me because it's raised up on podiums isn't it so it almost feels like actually it's slightly separate from the city around it yeah. And you, you, ha- you generally have to walk up steps to sort of get into it. So I guess as a kid, it is, it is a bit of a playground, isn't it? You used to get lost because it's famously very difficult to navigate around, isn't it? Yeah, see, I love the, um, the slanted walkways as opposed to the staircases. You know, there's loads of sort of... Um, yeah. yeah, the ramps. Yeah, wheelchair-friendly ramps throughout the place. And I love that because 
I, I, you know, I was trudging up and down steps in my block. We didn't have a lift and staircases made me angry. <laughs> so, like, I would go walk around and be like, oh my God, I'm a different level and it didn't hurt. That was nice. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe subconsciously I sort of fell in love with it because it, it, it didn't feel like a nightmare to get around. <laughs> yeah, right. And you're a big fan of brutalism generally, aren't you? Because I know you like the National Theatre as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge fan of that too. And again, it's concrete, it's brutalist, it's hard, it's aggressive, but it's also soft when you light it. Well, you know, you whack a warm light on it and suddenly it becomes quite comforting. I wouldn't say I'm the biggest brutalist fan. You know, I don't go and stand at the Trellick Tower and marvel at it, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I, I definitely have an appreciation for some of those buildings. And I think those two and those two buildings in particular, maybe even the Tate, you know, I guess you could say, or even something like, you know, the uh, the Oxo. There's like, I don't know if you even call the Oxo brutalist, but to me it's quite aggressive and industrial in a lot of ways. And maybe those industrial buildings speak to me too, because they're buildings that are, are built for a purpose. And to see London progress and change and redefine that purpose, it's it's kind of cool. Yeah. Very good. Okay, let's move on to your third choice, which is I think you wanted to talk about the redevelopment of King's Cross. So the area around the station and the canal and Cold Drops Yard. Many people, I'm sure, haven't been there yet. So just tell us about that place. So uh, I grew up in in North London, in Islington, as we've said a million times. And my gran lived around the corner from uh, where we were. So my gran lived sort of Cali King's Crossway. In fact, she lived in a house just off of York Way. And one of her best friends lived in Camden. So we used to walk the canal to and from all the time. And, you know, you had those massive gas structures and these huge factories and Bagley's was also a massive thing, an old factory that became a nightclub. And there were all of these big old buildings and factories in that area that I walked through and navigated as a kid. And, you know, my uncle was a bit of a naughty man when when I was younger and him and his mates used to nick from all of those factories. And on some of those walks as a kid, I saw things I shouldn't have seen because King's Cross was a very different place in the eighties and nineties, you know? And um, I loved it because it felt dangerous. It felt scary. And I felt weirdly at home in the middle of all of that, even when I was in, that garage era of my teens and I was going to Bagley's, you know, those cobblestones and the sound of cobblestones underneath high heels and Patrick Cox loafers and Gucci loafers <laughs> being my powerful wearing at the time. It just brings back so many memories and evokes so many memories for me all, you know, sort of there scraping the cigarette butts off of your Gucci loafers after going <laughs> to Bagley's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All of that is just so like vivid in my mind's eye that when it was announced that it was going to be redeveloped, it was like, oh my God, you're going to get rid of all of those memories. But the right bits have been kept, which is really gorgeous. You know, those cobbles still there and, you know, those buildings still feel the way that they used to. Like it's weird walking into Tom Dixon's studio or something now in Cold Drops Yard and looking around and going, oh my God, this used to be Bagley's. This used to be the dance floor. Was this the dance floor? Was this the, you know, the, little, the little R&B room that I used to go into when I'd go twice as nice? Is that what this was? And that redevelopment and that regeneration is incredible. You know, yeah, there are a lot more flats and uh, tall buildings. And you've obviously got the other side of the development where like YouTube have moved to and you've got Google there and all of these other huge, huge buildings. 
But I love what Cole Drops Yard is. You know, as I said, those cobblestones mean a lot to me. And as somebody who went to art college and didn't get into Central St. Martins, I look at Central St. Martins now there and the fountains in front of it and think, man, what an incredible place for a young creative to go. I had to, you know, I had to live with Camberwell. Camberwell did did absolutely fine for me. <laughs> but I didn't get into Central St. Martins and I'd always have a chip on my shoulder about it. But looking... <laughs> At that new um, building, well, not new building, that old new building that they've built for for this next wave of designers and artists and filmmakers and whoever, it's just a really gorgeous environment to be in. And that I don't know the name of the architect, but that incredible building that touches over Cold Drops Yard, it's just just really beautiful and inspiring in so many ways. So I just yeah, I love being in that space and I love being there. Yes, yeah, it's, it's Thomas Heatherwick, isn't it? He, he, there's sort of. Uh two rooftops that lean across each other almost kind of kiss each other yeah. over, over the top of all the shops yeah and then, and then as you say the old iron gas holders have been converted into flats haven't they um it's it's a real mix of old and new do you, do you like that mixture i do well i think that that's london isn't it that defines london in a really beautiful way because if you don't like that get used to it because that's where we're going <laughs> you know as the city becomes even more uh, busy and more people move here we have to create new homes. And I love spaces that have been wasteland being redefined and redeveloped. Like what's happening in Vauxhall is incredible to me. You know, I used to go to Club Coliseum in Vauxhall and that now is a, a block of flats. But also, you know, knowing that the flower market is being regenerated and redeveloped and knowing that there's a whole new district of restaurants and bars and, you know, everything that's happening along the river now is just awesome. So I, I love it. I love the direction that London is going in. Let's not have the gentrification conversation because that will make me sad and depressed. Yeah. Uh, and that's another one of those conversations that you don't have now. That's on the list alongside religion, football, COVID, and gentrification. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you're a Londoner, you just don't talk about those things now because it's so sensitive and it's hit everybody in a, a very, very personal way, I think. Exactly, but you're obviously really interested. I mean, the, the places that you've chosen are all about placemaking, aren't they? They're about creating a community sort of from scratch. Yeah, yeah. They're about moving forward. And I think that this is a city that is continuously moving forward and changing, uh, yeah. both in terms of the way it looks, who's here, who's defining what the city means, and also the way that you know we, we occupy it from transport links to the buildings that we live in. It's in a constant state of flux and I mean, all we have to do is look at my career to see that I enjoy that. You know, that doesn't scare me. Change is good, I think. So you very much feel like a Londoner, don't you? That's that's clear. Yeah, mate. I was born on Tottenham Court Road. Like, I don't think... <laughs> oh, yeah, I was born at the... Uh, is it the NCH? Um, oh, UCH. UCH, that's it. Yeah, yes, I was yes. born on the University College Hospital on Tottenham Court Road. And yeah, I'm, yeah I've lived in London my whole life. And don't get me wrong, I've, I've left the city, I promise. I've travelled <laughs> quite a bit, actually. I've been all over the world twice, it feels like now. And I genuinely think it's the best city in the world. And one of the big things about that is you know, the people. Immigrants have always been a huge part of what makes London unique from uh, even before Windrush, you know, there was a multicultural London hundreds of years ago. And, uh, you know, there, 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 there is documentation to prove that. And I think as somebody who grew up in an environment where even in my school, you know, we, we spoke 11 languages in my class, you know, Polish kids, Bangladeshi kids, African kids, white working class kids, kids from Ireland, Scotland. That's something that I've always 
experienced and grown up around. You know, you talk about the Arsenal, like being in Holloway and going to Highbury to go and watch the Arsenal and seeing people from all different backgrounds, you know, wearing the same shirt, singing the same offensive song towards Tottenham. It was just incredible because regardless of what our background is and regardless of what language we speak at home or what food we eat, we're all Londoners and we all support a team that is breaking our heart week on week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're right though. That's why I love football as well is because it's, it's actually the one place where CEOs and shopkeepers come together, really, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, more more so in Highbury, less so in the Emirates, because the CEOs aren't sitting in the same section as the shopkeepers. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the Roy Keane prawn sandwich area is way bigger than it used to be uh, at the Emirates now. So um, it's, a, it's a very different beast, but um, there is something beautiful about wearing the shirt and then people just stopping you and having a chat or, you know, people crying on your shoulder because <laughs> they're going through the same thing as you every Saturday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. So if you didn't live in London, where do you think you'd be? I don't know. Um, maybe back in Ghana. My family are from there. Both my parents were born in Ghana. And I go there every year with my friends. Uh, Accra as a city is incredible. I've got to know and become friends with David Ajay over the years. Uh, we've got a few mutual friends and he now lives there. And David Ajay, as you know, I'm sure you're aware, is inc- in fact, I think you had one of his his properties on the website recently with that incredible yeah. lime green seating area. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of David's work, always have been. And now I, I know the dude and his wife and kids and it's really lovely. And he lives in Ghana now and he's doing incredible stuff there. He's redeveloping and regenerating the whole waterfront. And um, he's just done this massive uh, cathedral and this really cool beach bar called Sandbox. And I love Ghana because it's my heritage, but also it's Accra specifically a place that is moving and changing. And with David, you know, laying some roots there and being given the room to do what he did in London times a million, it's incredible. So I I love going there and I also love seeing the progress. And I love being able to say that I know somebody who's, who's got a huge hand in reshaping the capital city of the country that I'm from. I didn't know that. That's that's amazing, actually. That's really good to hear that he's gone over there. Look up, look at some of these buildings. The cathedral's beautiful. You should look it up. It's great. Oh, wow. That's brilliant. I suppose the other thing that struck me is, is that all of the, the places you've chosen and, and what you've talked about today is, is also very, very urban, isn't it? So do you feel at home in the city? What happens if you go out to the countryside? <laughs> and my head explodes. No, I, I, <laughs> I do love the countryside. I, I genuinely do. Um, you know, we spoke at the beginning of this conversation about this new part of my career, which is writing and directing. And for me, writing is great in London. I love it. Uh, I, I write from home sometimes. Sometimes at, I'm over at 180 The Strand and I, I work from that lovely new space over there. But I also get a lot from getting out of town. And um, some of my amazing and beautifully helpful mentors uh, lend me their homes in the sticks and um, I go and write there. In fact, I wrote a whole draft of Pirates in Walberswick, which is a tiny little seaside <laughs> town in the middle of nowhere. But um, one of my mentors owns the house there. So he occasionally, him and his wife, give it to me to go and write there sometimes. So yeah, I, I see myself, at, well, I see myself. I genuinely find myself going through your inventory sometimes and looking at these little bolt holes by the sea <laughs> thinking, shall I do it? Is now the time? Is now the time? Shall I do it? But at some point I will definitely 
get myself something where I can just run to have an open fire and sit and write and be all of the romantic versions of a writer that I've always dreamed of being. I just need big cardigans and a pipe now. <laughs> <laughs> so who, who are your mentors then? I mean, not, not asking for names, but that, you know, how did you end up turning to people like that to help you, I suppose? Um, well, funny, I'm actually in the middle of writing this piece for Sight and Sound about the community uh, of filmmakers uh, in the UK. And I've been incredibly fortunate to have people put their arm around me and encourage me and support and and help me and help shape me as a writer in a lot of ways. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure he won't mind me saying the person I'm talking about is Richard Curtis, who's an incredible person when it comes to film in the UK, given what he's done over the years. But he's super, super encouraging of me, um, as is Emma, his missus. And um, she's just a juggernaut of her own, you know, and, and, and they've just been really, really helpful in so many ways. Um, but there's lots of other people who have invested time in me, like recently, I had a really lovely sit down with Joe Cornish, who's been really, really lovely and really helpful. And Jan Marge is another director who has done some amazing work and invested a lot of time and energy into me, actually came into the edit suite and told me where I was cocking up with my film. <laughs> um, and it's just, yeah, it, uh, back to this, this thing that I'm writing, I just think it's incredibly important that we are a community when it comes to filmmakers, because as an industry, increasingly the world is looking at what we're doing in this country. And there aren't many people that get to make films on a regular basis over here. You know, you can name on one hand the directors that are world renowned and happen to be British. So to feel that there is, you know, a help and encouragement and a, a lovely hug from the industry, it's just, um, yeah, it's a cool thing. That's really good. And do you work from home sometimes as well? I do. Uh, as I said, I've got this lovely dining table that I sit at sometimes and I just stare out into my garden. Uh, I'm literally having my grass cut while I talk to you. And it, it's immaculate. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, and the only reason it's gorgeous is because I'm not cocking it up out there. <laughs> Someone that comes in and does it for me and he's amazing. And it's just, yeah, really lovely to sit at this table and look out onto the garden and, you know, get the work done. But also it's nice to sometimes leave the house and go out to the twigs or sit in a yeah. workspace and do it. Reggie, let's leave it there. That's fantastic. I really, really enjoyed that. Thanks yeah, so no, much. I'm, I'm just so chuffed that you were interested in having me on. I love what you guys are doing, man. It's really Thank great because you. you're, you're more than just a, an estate agent now. You guys are a flipping brand. It's, it's amazing. We're trying. And, you know, I, I think it's like, I think it's important. I think how people live, you know, their home environment's a really, really important thing for supporting them, you know, physically, but also psychologically. And I don't think people always think about that so it's just getting just shining a light on that you know yeah well, can you do me a favor and make more of those youtube videos you don't do it enough i love them how do you think oh, that's yeah, no, they're really cool i mean there's nothing better than having somebody talk about their home but you know the sorts of people that you choose really believe in their property and know what they're talking about and it's just really lovely to hear it because i know i'm not alone i'm not the only weirdo <laughs> 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 you're basically ring fencing my people so <laughs> i keep putting that's my good. people on the youtube <laughs> that's, a, that's a public service i didn't know about i like that one <laughs> yeah exactly um mate absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me thank you reggie thanks very much to reggie and thanks to all of you for listening to hear about the episodes we've got coming up please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts 
If you can spare 30 seconds or so to rate and review the show, it's incredibly helpful as well because it means that other people can discover it. So thank you for that. As always, you can find photographs of some of the things we talked about today uh, and lots more inspiration for the home on our website, themodernhouse.com. We also have a sister site dedicated to the most beautiful historic houses, which is called inigo.com. This episode was produced by Gabriella Jones and the executive producer was Kate Taylor for Feast Collective. Feast Collective.